Section 20 of Self-Help. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Jonna Kabachan. Self-Help, with illustrations of conduct and perseverance, by Samuel Smiles. Chapter 8. Energy and Courage, Part 1. A coeur voyant rien d'impossible, Jacques Coeur. Den Mutinge gehör die Welt, German Proverb. In every work that he began, he did it with all his heart and prospered. Second Chronicles, Chapter 31, Verse 21. There is a famous speech recorded of an old Norseman, thoroughly characteristic of the Teuton. I believe neither in idols nor demons, said he. I put my sole trust in my own strength of body and soul. The ancient crest of a pickaxe with the motto of either I will find a way or make one was an expression of the same sturdy independence which to this day distinguishes the descendants of the Northmen. Indeed, nothing could be more characteristic of the Scandinavian mythology than that it had a god with a hammer. A man's character is seen in small matters, and from even so slight a test as the mode in which a man wields a hammer, his energy may in some measure be inferred. Thus an eminent Frenchman hit off in a single phrase the characteristic quality of the inhabitants of a particular district, in which a friend of his proposed to settle and buy land. Beware, said he, of making a purchase there. I know the men of that department, the pupils who come from it to our veterinary school at Paris do not strike hard upon the anvil. They want energy and you will not get a satisfactory return on any capital you may invest there. A fine and just appreciation of character, indicating the thoughtful observer, and strikingly illustrative of the fact that it is the energy of the individual men that gives strength to a state, and confers a value even upon the very soil which they cultivate. As the French proverb has it, Tant volant, tant vos The cultivation of this quality is of the greatest importance, resolute determination and the pursuit of worthy objects being the foundation of all true greatness of character. Energy enables a man to force his way through irksome drudgery and dry details, and carries him onward and upward in every station in life. It accomplishes more than genius, with not one-half the disappointment and peril. It is not eminent talent that is required to ensure success in any pursuit, so much as purpose, not merely the power to achieve, but the will to labor energetically and perseveringly. Hence, energy of will may be defined to be the very central power of character in a man. In a word, it is the man himself. It gives impulse to his every action and soul to every effort. True hope is based on it. 
and it is hope that gives the real perfume to life. There is a fine heraldic motto on a broken helmet in Battle Abbey, L'espoir est ma force, which might be the motto of every man's life. Woe unto him that is faint-hearted, says the son of Sirach. There is indeed no blessing equal to the possession of a stout heart. Even if a man fails in his efforts, it will be a satisfaction to him to enjoy the consciousness of having done his best. In humble life, nothing can be more cheering and beautiful than to see a man combating suffering by patience, triumphing in his integrity, and who, when his feet are bleeding and his limbs failing him, still walks upon his courage. Mere wishes and desires but engender a sort of green sickness in young minds, unless they are promptly embodied and act indeed. It will not avail merely to wait, as so many do, until Blucher comes up. But they must struggle on and persevere in the meantime, as Wellington did. The good purpose once formed must be carried out with alacrity and without swerving. In most conditions of life, drudgery and toil are to be cheerfully endured as the best and most wholesome discipline. In life, said Ari Sheffer, nothing bears fruit except by labor of mind or body. To strive, and still strive, such is life, and in this respect mine is fulfilled. But I dare to say with just pride that nothing has ever shaken my courage. With a strong soul and a noble aim, one can do what one wills, morally speaking. Hugh Miller said the only school in which he was properly thought was, that worldwide school in which toil and hardship are the severe but noble teachers. He who allows his application to falter or shirks his work on frivolous pretexts is on the sure road to ultimate failure. Let any task be undertaken as a thing not possible to be evaded, and it will soon come to be performed with alacrity and cheerfulness. Charles IX of Sweden was a firm believer in the power of will, even in youth. Laying his hand on the head of his youngest son when engaged on a difficult task, he exclaimed, He shall do it. He shall do it. The habit of application becomes easy in time, like every other habit. Thus, persons with comparatively moderate powers will accomplish much, if they apply themselves wholly and indefatigably to one thing at a time. Fowl Buxton placed his confidence in ordinary means and extraordinary application, realizing the scriptural injunction, Whatsoever thy hand findeth to do, do it with all thy might. And he attributed his own success in life to his practice of being a whole man, to one thing at a time. Nothing that is of real worth can be achieved without courageous working. Man owes his growth chiefly to that active striving of the will, that encounter with difficulty, 
which we call effort. And it is astonishing to find how often results apparently impracticable are thus made possible. An intense anticipation itself transforms possibility into reality. Our desires being often but the precursors of the things which we are capable of performing. On the contrary, the timid and hesitating find everything impossible chiefly because it seems so. It is related of a young French officer that he used to walk about his apartment exclaiming, I will be Marshal of France and a great general. His ardent desire was the presentiment of his success, for the young officer did become a distinguished commander, and he died a Marshal of France. Mr. Walker, author of the original, had so great a faith in the power of will that he says on one occasion he determined to be well, and he was so. This may answer once, but, though safer to follow than many prescriptions, it will not always succeed. The power of mind over body is no doubt great, but it may be strained until the physical power breaks down altogether. It is related of Muley Moloch, the Moorish leader, that, when lying ill, almost worn out by an incurable disease, a battle took place between his troops and the Portuguese, when, starting from his litter at the great crisis of the fight, he rallied his army, led them to victory, and instantly afterwards sank exhausted and expired. It is will, force of purpose, that enables a man to do or be whatever he sets his mind on being or doing. A holy man was accustomed to say, whatever you wish, that you are. For such is the force of our will, joined to the divine, that whatever we wish to be, seriously and with a true intention, that we become. No one ardently wishes to be submissive, patient, modest, or liberal, who does not become what he wishes. The story is told of a working carpenter who was observed one day planing a magistrate's bench, which he was repairing, with more than usual carefulness, and when asked the reason, he replied, because I wish to make it easy against the time when I come to sit upon it myself. And singularly enough, the man actually lived to sit upon that very bench as a magistrate. Whatever theoretical conclusions logicians may have formed as to the freedom of the will, each individual feels that practically he is free to choose between good and evil, that he is not as a mere straw thrown upon the water to mark the direction of the current, but that he has within him the power of a strong swimmer, and is capable of striking out for himself, of buffeting with the waves and directing to a great extent his own independent course. There is no absolute constraint upon our volitions, and we feel and know that we are not bound, as by a spell, with reference to our actions. It would paralyze all desire of excellence were we to think otherwise. The entire business and conduct of life 
with its domestic rules, its social arrangements, and its public institutions, proceed upon the practical conviction that the will is free. Without this, where would be responsibility? And what the advantage of teaching, advising, preaching, reproof, and correction? What were the use of laws were it not the universal belief, as it is the universal fact, that men obey them or not, very much as they individually determine? In every moment of our life, conscience is proclaiming that our will is free. It is the only thing that is wholly ours, and it rests solely with ourselves individually, whether we give it the right or the wrong direction. Our habits or our temptations are not our masters, but we of them. Even in yielding, conscience tells us we might resist, and that were we determined to master them, there would not be required for that purpose a stronger resolution than we know ourselves to be capable of exercising. You are now at the age, said Lamennais once, addressing a gay youth at which a decision must be formed by you. A little later, and you may have to groan within the tomb which you yourself have dug, without the power of rolling away the stone. That which the easiest becomes a habit in us is the will. Learn then to will strongly and decisively. Thus, fix your floating life and leave it no longer to be carried hither and thither like a withered leaf by every wind that blows. Buxton held the conviction that a young man might be very much what he pleased, provided he formed a strong resolution and held to it. Writing to one of his sons, he said to him, You are now at that period of life in which you must make a turn to the right or the left. You must now give proofs of principle, determination, and strength of mind, or you must sink into idleness and acquire the habits and character of a desultory, ineffective young man. And if once you fall to that point, you will find it no easy matter to rise again. I am sure that a young man may be very much what he pleases. In my own case, it was so. Much of my happiness and all my prosperity in life have resulted from the change I made at your age. If you seriously resolve to be energetic and industrious, depend upon it that you will for your whole life have reason to rejoice that you were wise enough to form and to act upon that determination. As will, considered without regard to direction, is simply constancy firmness, perseverance. It will be obvious that everything depends upon right direction and motives. Directed towards the enjoyment of the senses, the strong will may be a demon and the intellect merely its debased slave. But directed towards good, the strong will is a king and the intellect the minister of man's highest well-being. Where there is a will, there is a way, is an old and true saying. He who resolves upon doing a thing, by that very resolution, 
often scales the barriers to it and secures its achievement. To think we are able is almost to be so. To determine upon attainment is frequently attainment itself. Thus, earnest resolution has often seemed to have about it almost a savor of omnipotence. The strength of Soaro's character lay in his power of willing, and, like most resolute persons, he preached it up as a system. You can only half-will, he would say to people who failed. Like Richelieu and Napoleon, he would have the word impossible banished from the dictionary. I don't know, I can't, and impossible were words which he detested above all others. Learn, do, try, he would exclaim. His biographer has said of him that he furnished a remarkable illustration of what may be affected by the energetic development and exercise of faculties, the germs of which at least are in every human heart. One of Napoleon's favorite maxims was the truest wisdom is a resolute determination. His life, beyond most others, vividly showed what a powerful and unscrupulous will could accomplish. He threw his whole force of body and mind direct upon his work. Imbecile rulers and the nations they governed went down before him in succession. He was told that the Alps stood in the way of his armies. There shall be no Alps, he said, and the road across the Simplon was constructed through a district formerly almost inaccessible. Impossible, said he, is a word only to be found in the Dictionary of Fools. He was a man who toiled terribly, sometimes employing and exhausting four secretaries at a time. He spared no one, not even himself. His influence inspired other men and put a new life into them. I made my generals out of mud, he said. But all was of no avail, for Napoleon's intense selfishness was his ruin, and the ruin of France, which he left a prey to anarchy. His life taught the lesson that power, however energetically wielded, without beneficence, is fatal to its possessor and its subjects, and that knowledge or knowingness without goodness is but the infinite principle of evil. Our own Wellington was a far greater man, not less resolute, firm and persistent, but more self-denying, conscientious, and truly patriotic. Napoleon's aim was glory, Wellington's watchword, like Nelson's, was duty. The former word, it is said, does not once occur in his dispatches. The latter, often, but never accompanied by any high-sounding professions. The greatest difficulties could neither embarrass nor intimidate Wellington. His energy invariably rising in proportion to the obstacles to be surmounted. The patience the firmness, the resolution with which he bore through the maddening vexations 
and gigantic difficulties of the peninsular campaigns is perhaps one of the sublimest things to be found in history. In Spain, Wellington not only exhibited the genius of the general, but the comprehensive wisdom of the statesman. Though his natural temper was irritable in the extreme, his high sense of duty enabled him to restrain it, and to those about him his patience seemed absolutely inexhaustible. His great character stands untarnished by ambition, by avarice, or any low passion. Though a man of powerful individuality, he yet displayed a great variety of endowments. The equal of Napoleon in generalship, he was as prompt, vigorous, and daring as Clive, as wise a statesman as Cromwell, and as pure and high-minded as Washington. The great Wellington left behind him an enduring reputation, founded on toilsome campaigns won by skillful combination, by fortitude which nothing could exhaust by sublime daring, and perhaps by still sublimer patience. Energy usually displays itself in promptitude and decision. When Ledyard the Traveler was asked by the African Association when he would be ready to set out for Africa, he immediately answered, tomorrow morning. Blucher's promptitude obtained for him the cognomen of marshal forwards throughout the Prussian army. When John Jervis, afterwards Earl St. Vincent, was asked when he would be ready to join his ship, he replied, directly. And when Sir Colin Campbell, appointed to the command of the Indian army, was asked when he could set out, his answer was tomorrow, an earnest of his subsequent success. For it is rapid decision and a similar promptitude in action, such as taking instant advantage of an enemy's mistakes that so often wins battles. At Arcola, said Napoleon, I won the battle with 25 horsemen. I seized a moment of lassitude, gave every man a trumpet, and gained the day with this handful. Two armies or two bodies which meet and endeavor to frighten each other. A moment of panic occurs, and that moment must be turned to advantage. Every moment lost, said he at another time, gives an opportunity for misfortune. And he declared that he beat the Austrians because they never knew the value of time. While they dawdled, he overthrew them. India has, during the last century, been a great field for the display of British energy. From Clive to Havelock and Clyde, there is a long and honorable roll of distinguished names in Indian legislation and warfare, such as Wellesley, Metcalfe, Outram, Edwards, and the Lawrences. Another great but sullied name is that of Warren Hastings, a man of dauntless will and indefatigable industry. His family was ancient and illustrious, but their vicissitudes of fortune and ill-required loyalty in the cause of the Stuarts brought them to poverty.
and the family estate at Dalesford, of which they had been lords of the manor for hundreds of years, at length passed from their hands. The last hastings of Dalesford had, however, presented the parish living to his second son, and it was in his house many years later that Warren Hastings, his grandson, was born. The boy learnt his letters at the village school, on the same bench with the children of the peasantry. He played in the fields which his fathers had owned, and what the loyal and brave Hastings of Dalesford had been was ever in the boy's thoughts. His young ambition was fired, and it is said that one summer's day, when only seven years old, as he laid him down on the bank of the stream which flowed through the domain, he formed in his mind the resolution that he would yet recover possession of the family lands. It was the romantic vision of a boy, yet he lived to realize it. The dream became a passion, rooted in his very life, and he pursued his determination through youth up to manhood, with that calm but indomitable force of will, which was the most striking peculiarity of his character. The orphan boy became one of the most powerful men of his time. He retrieved the fortunes of his line, bought back the old estate, and rebuilt the family mansion. When, under a tropical sun, says Macaulay, he ruled fifty millions of Asiatics, his hopes, amidst all the cares of war, finance, and legislation, still pointed to Dalesford. And when his long public life, so singularly checkered with good and evil, with glory and obloquy, had at length closed forever, it was to Dalesford that he retired to die. Sir Charles Napier was another Indian leader of extraordinary courage and determination. He once said of the difficulties with which he was surrounded in one of his campaigns, they only make my feet go deeper into the ground. His Battle of Miani was one of the most extraordinary feats in history. With 2,000 men, of whom only 400 were Europeans, he encountered an army of 35,000 hardy and well-armed Baluchis. It was an act apparently of the most daring temerity, but the general had faith in himself and in his men. He charged the Baluch center up a high bank which formed their rampant in front, and for three mortal hours the battle raged. Each man of that small force, inspired by the chief, became, for the time, a hero. The Baluchis, though twenty to one, were driven back, but with their faces to the foe. It is this sort of pluck, tenacity, and determined perseverance which wins soldiers' battles, and indeed, every battle. It is the one neck nearer that wins the race and shows the blood. It is the one march more that wins the campaign, the five minutes more persistent courage that wins the fight. Though your force be less than another's, you equal and outmaster your opponent if you continue it longer 
and concentrated more. The reply of the Spartan father who said to his son, when complaining that his sword was too short, add a step to it, is applicable to everything in life. Napier took the right method of inspiring his men with his own heroic spirit. He worked as hard as any private in the ranks. The great art of commanding, he said, is to take a fair share of the work. The man who leads an army cannot succeed unless his whole mind is thrown into his work. The more trouble, the more labor must be given. The more danger, the more pluck must be shown till all is overpowered. A young officer who accompanied him in his campaign in the Coochie Hills once said, When I see that old man incessantly on his horse, how can I be idle who am young and strong? I would go into a loaded cannon's mouth if he ordered me. This remark, when repeated to Napier, he said was ample reward for his toils. The anecdote of his interview with the Indian juggler strikingly illustrates his cool courage as well as his remarkable simplicity and honesty of character. On one occasion, after the Indian bows, a famous juggler visited the camp and performed his feats before the general, his family, and staff. Among other performances, this man cut in two with a stroke of his sword a lime or lemon placed in the hand of his assistant. Napier thought there was some collusion between the juggler and his retainer. To divide by a sweep of the sword on a man's hand so small an object without touching the flesh he believed to be impossible, though a similar incident is related by Scott in his Romance of the Talisman. To determine the point, the general offered his own hand for the experiment, and he stretched out his right arm. The juggler looked attentively at the hand and said he would not make the trial. I thought I would find you out, exclaimed Napier. But stop, added the other. Let me see your left hand. The left hand was submitted, and the man then said firmly, If you will hold your arm steady, I will perform the feat. But why the left hand and not the right? Because the right hand is hollow in the center, and there is a risk of cutting off the thumb. The left is high and the danger will be less. Napier was startled. I got frightened, he said. I saw it was an actual feat of delicate swordsmanship, and if I had not abused the man as I did before my staff and challenged him to the trial, I honestly acknowledge I would have retired from the encounter. However, I put the lime on my hand and held out my arm steadily. The juggler balanced himself and with a swift stroke cut the lime in two pieces. I felt the edge of the sword on my hand as if a cold thread had been drawn across it. So much, he added, for the brave swordsmen of India, whom our fine fellows defeated at Miani. End of section 20 Recording by Jonah Kapuchan.